Would you pray with me as we get going? Lord, I, uh, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this uh, group that we gather every week on the first day of the week as uh, those before us have given us the example. Lord, I pray for this body of believers uh, by which we can depend on each other in prayer. I thank you for your word, your spirit, the way you guide us in this life. I just pray at this time for strength. Lord, as we turn to your word and we uh, listen to what you have to say to us, Lord, we just pray that you would fill us at this time uh, with your words for how we should live. Thank you for this sermon series, Lord, and, and I just give you uh, all the praise and glory right now for all that you do through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, uh, the title of this week's message is, I Have Another Dream. And uh, if you remember when we did the I Had a Dream message uh, a few weeks back, uh, I had a similar joke to this, so I thought I would throw this in here. I already see people shaking their heads, so must be great. Said to the wife upon waking one morning, that was strange. Last night I had a nightmare that I ate a giant marshmallow. Of course, my wife was here. She heard the, she heard the way we kicked off the sermon entitled I Have a Dream. Becky said to me, let me guess, you woke up and your pillow was gone. I replied, no, I woke up and one of my giant marshmallows was gone. It's tragic. Luke's still waiting on the punchline. <laughs> Courtesy of Google. Now the rest of you are saying, can we go to children's church too? Please turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Daniel chapter 4. We're going to return to the narrative here of King Nebuchadnezzar. We heard some of the text this morning. Thank you, Mike, for that. If you remember, uh, this takes place some 600 years before the birth of Jesus. What's been happening with Nebuchadnezzar? What's been happening in our narrative? You know, the, the book's entitled Daniel, but so much of what's been happening here revolves around this king. The king's been squaring off. He's basically been fighting against the Lord, these last three chapters, hasn't he? Isn't this really what's been happening in our uh, Daniel sermon plan series so far? Think about it. Think back with me. Uh, we've taken a, we've had a week or two away, so let's, let's refresh ourselves with what's been going on. Chapter one, we had the Babylonian capture of the Israelites. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar believes uh, you know, the, the form of worship he is used to, his people's form, this polytheism, this worship of many gods. Of course, this is superior to the worship of the God of Israel, right? It's that old joke, that old Mel Brooks joke, you know? Uh, they're poor. They only got one God. We're rich. We got a God for everything. Yeah. Keep moving here. The king may have assumed when he conquered the Jews in Daniel chapter 1 that their God was just as easily forgotten as anything about Israel-like culture, right? In matters of conquest. The king is going to be proven wrong. God is going to prove him wrong. Daniel refused to let his worship of Yahweh be defiled by Babylonian food. This happened back in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Along with his three companions, uh, they're given these new names, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Our hero is blessed by God in learning and all sk in skill and all literature and wisdom, the Bible says in Daniel uh, 1.17. Daniel's also additionally blessed with the gift of, quote, understanding in all visions and dreams. This is important. 
These gifts are going to come in handy a chapter later. Chapter 2, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this, this dream, this series of dreams. They trouble him to the point of wanting to murder all the wise men in the kingdom. Chapter 2, verse 12, now he doesn't actually go through with it, thanks to Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream. In the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar finally gets some understanding that Daniel's God, uh, chapter 2, verse 47, the God of gods and Lord of lords is powerful and mighty, right? He has some understanding of this. This is quite a breakthrough for Nebuchadnezzar. At this point, the king is even going to call the God of Israel a revealer of mysteries. That's how he's going to refer to him. He gives Daniel more power in the kingdom. Uh, he makes him ruler, uh, prefect over Babylon. So it's obvious that this blasphemer, this, this world conqueror of Babylon, mighty, mighty man, he's beginning to show respect for the God of Israel. He's beginning to get the point. But the king still has a misunderstanding about God's presence. Nebuchadnezzar still thinks of uh, Jewish religion as just one of the many. Yahweh is just one of the many gods. We know people like that today, don't we? People that claim religious tolerance. But even the king's supposed religious tolerance for the Jewish worship of one God doesn't last long after chapter 2. What happens in chapter 3? You remember what he does? He sets up a golden image. He throws Daniel's three companions into a fiery furnace for refusing to worship it. And it's going to take God personally delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames before the king is able to admit, hey, maybe the God of Israel is, is kind of high up there on the chain of divinity. Maybe he's up there a bit, but this polytheism, this belief in many gods, it was firmly embedded into Babylonian culture. The king just isn't willing to let this go. Now, at the end of chapter 3, verse 29, he says there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way, but the Lord is still uh, waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to say there's no other God, period. That's what he's missing here. That's what he still hasn't admitted. This is, this is what he still hasn't uh, come to terms with. Not just one God among many, but the one and only God who was and is control of all things. Big difference there. Commentators note that Nebuchadnezzar thought he himself was like a god. I mean, he had his own palace. It was like a temple, right? How does the king of kings send the message that he's, he's not just a god for decoration? That's not what this is all about but he's the one true God over all creation. Look with me at the beginning of Daniel chapter 4. We'll jump around a little bit this morning, kind of paint a picture of what we're talking about. Verse 1 of, of Daniel chapter 4 begins this way. If you've got a Bible handy, you want to turn there with me. This isn't on the overhead here. Verse 1 begins, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Uh, this chapter that we're jumping in, it actually begins like an ancient letter. It reads this way. The person that's speaking, Nebuchadnezzar, identifies himself right away. Why does the king, of king, uh, why does the king excuse me, kick off this part of 
Daniel himself. For what reason? Let's find out. Continue in verses 2 and 3 with me in your Bibles if you've got them open. He says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. We might read, read this and we might think, wow, what's happened here? Something's happened. Something's taken place. Is the king actually referring to the God of Israel as the Most High God? In the beginning of chapter 4. Certainly sounds like it. Let's continue on. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So the king has had another dream. And somehow this time, God is holding his attention after he wakes up. Well, let's jump down now to today's highlighted text. This is in verses 34 to 37 of chapter 4. Interesting. It's almost as if sovereignty is starting to kick in a little bit here. The king's understanding of it. Verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay to him, can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? It sounds like we have a winner. He gets it. Sounds like he gets it. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Wow. Now, after all of this praise, all of this praise for God, by the very individual who has caused so much trouble for God's people, what's gone on here? What has taken place in his life? Verse 34 mentions at the end of the days, verse 36 notes at the same time my reason returned to me between these two bookends of Daniel chapter 4. What's happened to this king of Babylon, to this dreamer? The answer is crazier than eating a giant marshmallow in your sleep. Let's look back and start skimming in the text. Uh, please turn to verse 4. And you can start skimming there, and we're going to end up at, the verse, at the, verse 33 before we return to the highlighted text. What's happened on the timeline? Well, once again, a dream. A dream has come to Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do? He calls in the usual suspects. Uh, we've been familiar with these guys a couple times already. Verse 6 to interpret it. We can tell from the get-go that the king still doesn't get it, right? We're back to that. He's still a non-believer of the one true God. Really, he still is. So he calls in his own pagan interpreters again. And then when the king finally does remember, oh yeah, Daniel, he's got interpretive gifts. Uh, he's still thinking of him as this Belshazzar, right, in verse 8 
Uh, he's still thinking him as named after the name of my God, verse 8, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. He continues, I have another dream. And in verses 10 through 18 of our text in Scripture, we're told all about it. What happens? In his sleep, the king dreams. He sees a tree. It grows, becomes strong. The tree could be seen over the whole earth. It's got beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, which provided shade as well as food for all the beasts and birds. Scripture 12, uh, Scripture says in verse 12, and then the king continues, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven proclaiming, Follow along with me in verse 14, if you would. Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Text goes on, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. And then going on here, this voice from heaven then went on to describe the tree as having the mind of a beast for seven periods of time, verse 16. And at this point, maybe we're thinking, what in the world is this all about? I should turn on a TV preacher so he can explain it to me and sell me something. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's actually told what this dream's all about. Second part of verse 17. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. That's the reason. But in the narrative, verse 18, King Nebuchadnezzar turns the floor over to Daniel to interpret everything. He doesn't get it. And Daniel sits there, not sure how he's going to break the news to King Nebuchadnezzar that his tree of pride has come before a great future fall. Have you ever had to deal with a, a, a prideful person? I, I think we all, from time to time, can be guilty of forgetting the Lord's grace and presence in our lives, right? I think we're all guilty of that from time to time. But it seems there are some individuals that we encounter in this world from time to time, and I'm trying to choose my terminology carefully from the pulpit. Some just think that those old shorts of theirs just aren't capable of carrying an odor. You know what I mean? Well, let's face it. There are people out there that, who think better than you, know better than you, talk better than you, think faster than you, are more cultured than you, can grill a better steak than you, play 17 more instruments than you, have a better credit score than you, have collected more deer mounts than you, make more money than you, have a better looking house and faster car than you, have a more functional family situation than you, and have climbed up the social ladder much higher and much faster and farther than you, and you know what? They're going to make sure you're reminded, no matter how subtle a reminder of these things too. Prideful people are difficult to work professionally next to, and they're even more difficult to exchange family and friendly conversation with. Why? Because they think it's all about them. These people forget that the Most High rules over all and gives everything to whom He will. Now, I'm not saying a person can't set a goal, work toward that goal, improve one's life because of the goal, and feel accomplished. But I'm saying that at the end of the day, all credit and glory gets passed on to the one who rules over each one of us. <clears throat> one preacher tells the story 
of how a rural grocery store owner some years ago dealt with a particularly prideful customer one day. The shop owner was a rather unique individual. He had gained a reputation for quoting scripture after each sale. For example, uh, one day a lady purchased some material and the shop owner remarked she seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands from the book of Proverbs chapter 31. Another time, a man bought a bag of flour, and, and the shop owner said, Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right? The words of the Lord. One time, a, a young family with, with two little boys purchased some candy, and as he rang it up, the owner commented, Let the little children come to me. Again, the words of Jesus. One day, a well-dressed middle-aged stranger came into the shop, from one of the towns up the road. Can I help you, asked the shop owner. I need a blanket for my horse, grumbled the stranger impatiently. He's out in his trailer, and it's too cold for anything cheap and flimsy. So listen to me, fella, he rattled on. I only pay good money for the best of what's around, and that includes my horse. I don't buy anything less than the best, so bring me the nicest blanket you've got and make it quick. The owner proceeded back to the storeroom and returned with a brown blanket. He said to the stranger, that'll be $5, please. Five dollars? You've got to be kidding me. The man scoffed. Listen, that horse out there is a thoroughbred. He's not going to stand still for an old five-dollar blanket. So without saying a word, the store owner shrugged, took back the blanket and selected a different color from the storeroom and brought it back out. All right, that'll be twenty-five dollars, he said to the customer. Now look, ex exclaimed the stranger, perhaps I didn't make myself clear. This isn't just any old horse I'm speaking of. He's worth thousands. And you're not just dealing with some local dummy here. I know what I'm looking at. So you take this thing back and bring me the most expensive blanket you've got. Do you understand? The shop owner nodded, went back again into the storeroom, pulled out yet another color of the exact same material, and brought it once again to his demanding customer. Okay, this is the only one I've got left, said the store owner, and it's $100. Now that's more like it, said the proud fellow as he paid. Muttering something under his breath, the stranger then shook his head, threw the $5 blanket over his shoulder, and left. At that time, a, a couple of locals in the shop who had been browsing the shelves turned to look the direction of the shopkeeper. They wondered which scripture he could possibly come up with in response to the sale he'd just made. Going behind the register, the shopkeeper smiled, rung up the $100, and said out loud, He was a stranger, and I took him in. Now, to clarify, that's not what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25. But, you know, pride certainly does come before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. And a fall is exactly what is about to come upon Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. The Bible says Daniel's troubled by the dream he's about to interpret. He's dismayed by what the king has described to him. In verse 19, the text says his thoughts alarmed him. Nebuchadnezzar thinks, how bad could this scenario involving a tree actually be? It's like the Lorax. No, it's not. <laughs> Look at verse 19 and the king's response with me. Hey, chill out, Daniel. Don't, don't stew about this. King says, back, let, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. I can only imagine what Daniel thinks about this. Like this guy, he just doesn't get it. The guy never gets it. 
Look at how Daniel responds to the king. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies, he says. King, the tree is you. Verses 20 to 27, you've, verse 22, be grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown, verse 22, visible to the end of the whole earth, under the Holy One, the Lord himself. You're going to be chopped down, destroyed, with the roots of your kingdom left in the earth for a season, preserved. Verse 25, you're going to be left in the tender grass, the field made to eat grass like an ox for the duration of seven periods of time. Same verse. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. King, says Daniel, this, this dream about a tree is really a nightmare about a tree. Don't laugh this off. Now's not the time to be prideful but merciful. Verse 27, Daniel's trying to give Nebuchadnezzar some advice, changing his attitude to stop fighting God Almighty, to stop trying to run the show. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I gave in and admitted that God was God. At some point in our life, we have to give in and admit that God is God. Some of us, it takes longer than others. But this is what King Nebuchadnezzar must do before it's too late. Now, here's what's interesting of the text. Even though God, by way of Daniel, has told the king he's going to lose his kingdom, that he's going to even lose his marbles in the process, basically, you notice that God never allows for the king to lose the kingdom altogether. Verse 23, this tree that is chopped down is bound with a band of iron and bronze, the text says. Now, the idea of this was, uh, like one commentator writes, <clears throat> the stump or root of a tree, if it was deemed valuable, could be carefully secured by an iron or brass cover. It would keep the stump from being opened or cracked by the heat of the sun. It would keep out moisture, which would rot it. It would bind it together with the hope that the tree would grow again. That's the reason for this imagery in the, in the dream. God fully intends for Babylon to remain for a little while in his sovereignty. God also fully intends to show the man who conquered God's city of Jerusalem that it was only by his allowance that such a thing could pass. Not because Nebuchadnezzar was so great. I can just hear the king being very much like, God, you're not just dealing with some dummy here. That horse is a thoroughbred. And this is exactly how the dialogue continues. Look with me in your text. Verse 28 says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal <clears throat> palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Not very humble words to speak before the great I am. The only self-sufficient being in the universe. The one who gave you everything plus a warning about your ways, plus a whole year to turn the ship around. <clears throat> There's an expression that we hear in the, in the English language. Maybe you've heard or said it a time or two. You know, don't, don't bite the hand that feeds you. A teenager insulting his parents in a, in a text message to his buddies, biting the hand that feeds you. 
or being unnecessarily critical of, of one's employer or workplace, biting the hand that feeds you. And this expression, I actually looked, looked it up. It's cool what you can do uh, in the name of uh, sermon prep. This expression, don't bite the hand that feeds you, was actually coined by the Greek poet Sappho. This was right around the time, interestingly enough, that Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon in 600 B.C. Its earliest recorded uh, usage in English was in 1711 by writer Joseph Addison, drawing, of course, on the metaphor of a dog biting its master. And King Nebuchadnezzar was biting the hand that fed him by claiming any glory for himself. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And then when we look on here, verses 32 and 33, here's biblical proof that when people made in God's image, when we act like beasts off a chain, he might just treat us as such. The once great King Nebuchadnezzar, driven from men to live like a wild animal. This is exactly what happens. A dream has come true. He, he, he gets long matted hair, claw-like nails, living like an ox, verse 33. Who knows? Maybe, maybe in this state of madness, the king is actually responsible for the age-old legend of Bigfoot, or as they call him up by the Canadian border, Sasquatch, eh? I'm going, to get, I'm going to try to get away with A jokes as long as I live in Michigan. So I just. But seriously, we read verse 33 of this text. We say, this is crazy. Why would God allow this? Why is he allowing this guy to go out of his mind like this? But you know, we, we see it around us all the time, don't we? Some of the most brilliant God-gifted biologists of our time will look at creation and look at planet Earth and say, no, there's no God. We're positive of that. We might have been dropped on this planet by aliens, though. I'm serious. Public schools will teach secular theory that, that mankind sludged out of some kind of ooze billions of years ago is fact, forcing generations of children in public schools to accept a worldview without meaning, without any kind of meaningful explanation for laughter or grief or the existence of good and evil. Now, we've been given the book of Genesis. It's been given to us. It answers these questions. But macroevolution is instead considered the secular history of humans. That's insane. That's insane. We're passing uh, laws uh, for the rights of domesticated animals. While I'm all for protecting our animals, I, I'm talking about leaving, uh, making it a felony to leave a long-haired long German shepherd outside the house too long in single-digit temperatures. Meanwhile... The state of New York is, legally, uh, is legalizing the ripping of a baby's body out of his or her mother just days before birth. This is insanity. By the way, it's mindless to me that 50% of all marriages in this country, by the way, Christians and non-believers, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Do you realize that also at the same time, $4 billion is spent every year on the adult film industry? because we behave like animals. We're crazy. Off our rockers with pride. Think about pride in this country and what it does to us. 
what it does uh, to each one of us in some way or the other in this country. We've got union pride, and we've got sports team pride, and we've got Republican pride, we've got Democrat pride, we've got ethnic pride, school pride, we've got religious pride, we've got nationalist pride, and we've got gay and transgendered pride. And if you get on social media, you'll be inundated with each and every other kind of pride that human beings can conjure up. But you know what we won't hear a whole lot about? You know what we're not going to see? You know what's missing in this pursuit of people and politics and philosophy and industry? A little honest-to-goodness humility under our Creator. That's what's missing. That's what we lack. A little graciousness and a little gratitude under God. Human beings thinking clearly, living honestly, acting as though there is someone above them who sees their deeds and knows their needs. You know what insanity truly looks like? People living without accountability, not considering the will of their maker for their lives, only following each hasty emotion, each lust of the flesh. And sometimes I wonder if this American dream we dream today comes off a little too much like a king of Babylonian dream to the one who allows us everything. Unless we follow God's ways, living is madness. Madness. One author writes, verses 33 and 34 of our text is all that is said about Nebuchadnezzar's seven years of insanity. And it's hard to imagine a more severe punishment from God. For a time, the king was put out to pasture, literally. But this is pride, spiritual insanity, claiming credit for ourselves, what belongs to God alone. Author concludes, when a man tries to become like God, deciding all things for himself, man becomes instead like the animals. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. And our highlighted text for today confirms it. Because why? When the king, when Nebuchadnezzar looked up and saw his maker, sanity was restored. Verse 34, when the king praised the Most High, he could see and think clearly again. And now we're back to the place where we first began, where the kingdom is actually restored to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of Daniel chapter 4, we see it's been this long spiritual battle for the king since he first envisioned Daniel and friends as his subjects. But no matter the vision, no matter the dream, God has been in control. God has been in control. The proud around will be humbled in time. Daniel always knew the king knows it now too. The question for each one of us today is, how humble am I? How humble are you before a great God? Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that no matter who we are, no matter what state we're in, no matter even our attitude at the time, Lord, we know that you can and, and you are using us. Lord, I pray that we would live to give you glory. I pray, oh God, that our, our direction, that our fuel for this life wouldn't be the self, wouldn't be whatever we can gain, 
would be your will. Lord, I thank you for this story in which we see how even those who oppose you, ultimately you will have the glory over. Lord, I just pray that, that we would have the conviction to call you the Most High right now, today. Just like it was in Babylon. Lord, there are so many gods. There's so many gods in this nation. And they're all clamoring for our attention, for our worship. The God of self, the God of pleasure, the God of convenience, the God of politics. Too often, Lord, we're We're just busy, but we're not busy for you. Help us, God, to remember that only you, only your words will last in time. No matter how great or small we are, you love us. You want us for yourself. Time is limited. Lord, I thank you for your, your mercy and grace that was shown on the cross. Mercy and grace that we don't deserve, for we once stood just like Nebuchadnezzar, born into and holding on to this world. But I pray, Lord, that as we continue on that we would remember that our only safety, our only sanity is in you. Help us, Lord, to be the people that you can use for your glory today and in the years to come as we provide a, a witness of you to others that, who do not know you so that we can see the sacrifice that's been made because you are so great and so loving. Be with us when we're weak, when we doubt, and help us to remember that you can use all things in our lives for the better. And it is in the name of Jesus I pray these things, amen.